invite you to turn in your Bible this morning to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We've been going through Peter's letter in the evening services, but this morning we come to a text that is, I think, just really helpful for the whole church, and I thought I'd have a better opportunity to address the entire church in a morning service, and so we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 4. Looking at verses 7 through 11, 7 through 11. This morning, uh, the, the text really serves as a um, sort of a, ch- a checklist for what does is, what is a healthy church look like? And we're not going to be able to cover everything uh, in our text this morning, so I'll probably be back at it next week to finish it up. But this morning, there's our, there are some commands here. What I th- it's important for us to see the commands in the context of the gospel. Uh, Peter has been talking about in this letter, uh, the, what a wonderful thing it is to be a Christian, that, that we have a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's been talking about our identity as those who've been called by God to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, are calling us to offer up sacrifices of praise and proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's, an, it's a wonderful thing to be a Christian. And yet, there's suffering involved, and he's talked about that, that in chapter 2. Jesus is our example of suffering. Uh, he's talked about uh, we live the Christian life, um, not first of all in terms of our morality, but in terms of humility and submission and, and living together as husbands and wives, very practical sorts of things. And then in the, the last bit of chapter 3 and beginning here in chapter 4, uh, Peter just reminded us again of uh, the, the benefits of being a Christian. In the end of chapter 3, you can have a clear conscience as you appeal to God uh, concerning the the death of Jesus Christ who died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And, and that, that that truth, that gospel truth is sufficient no matter who you are, what you've done, to, that you can appeal to God for a pure conscience as you appeal to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on your behalf. That was uh, end of chapter 3. I received uh, several uh, emails and, and uh, notes back after that sermon, just saying that was exactly what I needed to hear. We, we wrestle with guilty consciences, with, with taint, stained consciences, and we need to understand that the gospel gives us a pure conscience. Not because of uh, that we've stopped now with sin, but Jesus Christ has taken care of our guilt and shame. And then in the first part of chapter 4, Peter goes on with this wonderful good news, that if you have, um, well, let's just tell you what, we're going to start at the beginning of, of chapter 4, and we'll read through the uh, verse 11, and then we'll continue on. So the end of, uh, beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, and no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. 
But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now that's a complicated text, but to break it down very simply, Peter is saying, if you are a Christian, you died to the realm, the kingdom of sin, and you have been brought into the kingdom of life and the grace of God, so that you don't belong to the world anymore. And it doesn't, sin doesn't have dominion over you anymore. You are a, a new creature, a new creation. You live in the realm of grace. And even though in your body, right, we will be judged in the flesh the way people are, we will die because of Jesus Christ. We will live in the Spirit the way that God does. And one day our body will be resurrected. And so all that good news, all that wonderful gospel truth, and now Peter calls us to live in keeping with it. And so let's give our attention to verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace, Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I'd like you to keep your Bible open there as we're going to just follow Peter's thoughts here. Let's ask the Lord to bless us as we come to his word. Jesus Christ, you are the living Lord, the one who speaks, and we trust, Lord, that your Holy Spirit has inspired these words, and your Holy Spirit is present today so that these words are living words to us, not the dead words of men, but the living word of God, and that it is your intent, Lord Jesus, to mold us according to these words, to lead us into paths of righteousness and life, paths of fruitfulness. And so, oh God, we, we pray for your help. Help me as I speak. Help those who listen as they hear. And we pray, Lord, that your will would be accomplished this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said earlier, I, um, one of the things I love about this text is how helpful it is Sort of as a diagnostic tool. If you are a mechanic or you've taken your car to a mechanic, you, you see the mechanic maybe pulls out a little red box and plugs it into a, something in your car and dials around and hits some buttons and, and uh, tells you you need a new car. Hopefully he doesn't do that. But right, he, he, can, uh, he can read uh, the signals and codes that, uh, that your engine is producing and, and he can tell what's wrong with your car. Uh, that's a very helpful tool. Well, the Scripture gives us diagnostic tools, um, ways that we can sort of reflect on our own life and we can reflect on the life of the church and we can identify areas of strength and areas of weakness. And this is a wonderful text to that end. Uh, Peter, as, after having laid out the gospel, now gives us some very specific uh, practical marks of a person or a church that gets the gospel that understands what this really is about. 
And so we're going to be following this through this morning. We're not, as I said before, we're not going to be able to get through all of it. Uh, if you look at your, if, if you look at the text, uh, Peter begins the end of all things is at hand, and so there we sort of have the basis, the context, you might say, that, that should motivate us um, in Christian living. Then the commands, so be self-controlled and, and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Uh, then specifically talking about love. And then hospitality, and then service, verses 10, in the church. And then to the end, the goal, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So that's, that's basically the, the basic pattern of things that he's talking about. We want to begin with the believer's awareness in verse 7. The believer's awareness. The end of all things is at hand. Peter is reminding us where we live, what our context is in the drama of redemption. He's not simply saying that the end is near, that Jesus could return at any moment. That is absolutely true, and Peter believes that to be true. But the, but the, the, the sense of this phrase, the end of all things is at hand, is that Peter believes that Jesus Christ, having come and lived and died and rose again victoriously and ascended into heaven and the Spirit has been poured out, the church is being built up, but there's nothing left redemptively except the return of Christ Jesus and the consummation then of all things. And so Peter's not just saying the end of all things is at hand, so, so um there's a termination point coming, that's true, but more specifically, Peter's saying there's a consummation coming. You see, he's enticing us to a glorious future. If you turn back in your Bible just to chapter 1, you're going to see the same thought expressed slightly differently, chapter 1, verse 13. Just grab your Bible, 1, verse 13. Therefore, he says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, same, same, same language, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace, the gifts, the reward, the blessings that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, he, here, right off the bat, is a, is a nice benchmark test for how well you understand your faith and how much your life is being transformed by the gospel. The question is this, do you think about the end of the world as a sad termination where you'll no longer be able to do the things that you love to do, or do you see the end of time as an eagerly anticipated consummation? I was reading an article recently where a author asked his readers, if you knew that tomorrow was the last day, the, the world was going to end tomorrow, and you knew that without the shadow of a doubt, what would you do today? The answers are very uh, interesting. Uh, um, several said they would uh, throw a huge party. They'd uh, go to the beach, get drunk, get high, just party with their friends until the end came. Other people said they would uh, take revenge on someone who had deeply wounded them. Some even talked about, uh, I, I just want to kill this person because there'll be no consequences. 
Other people talked about um, just spending the day in sexual pleasure. You see, people in that question revealed what they were really living for. What What they really, in their heart of hearts, wished they could do. Well, what do you really wish you could do in your heart of hearts? So if I would tell you tomorrow the world's going to end, would you say, we have got to get out of here. we got to get to the beach. Got to go fishing, or I've got to go shopping, or I've got to go party. What, what would it be? Or would you say, tomorrow? <laughs> yes. Are you sure it's tomorrow? Yep, it's going to be tomorrow. Wonderful. Let's stay here all day long. And wouldn't that be a wonderful way to go to heaven? Just worshiping with all your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ and the heavens open and together we go and meet the Lord in the air? That would be a good day. So what does your heart really, really want to do in heart of hearts? Well, that's a great benchmark, you see. When Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. It makes a difference if you think sad termination or eagerly anticipated consummation. If you think about a a bride and the wedding is two weeks away, if she's thinking of her wedding day as a sad termination point, the end of her single life, something's wrong. You would want a bride to be thinking of her wedding day as an eagerly anticipated consummation where she gets to enter into the joys of covenanted marital love. And that's exactly how the church should think about where we live. These are the last days. Jesus Christ might return at any moment. There is a magnificent consummation just ahead. And so Peter's enticing us now. Live like it's true. Live like the bride longing for her wedding day. It's the, it's the context of our life. We, have to, we need this, this awareness of where we live in, uh, in redemptive history and, and what's just ahead of us. And in that context, then, Peter gives a command. Two commands, actually, very closely related. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. Well, what is he talking about? Well, have you ever been to a Little League game, maybe for seven-year-olds? Um, and, and, and just took some time to watch the outfielders. Okay? What are the outfielders doing generally uh, in Little League for seven-year-olds? All sorts of things. Right? He might be watching butterflies. He might be smelling his glove. <clears throat> he might be turning in circles to make himself dizzy. Right? He's doing <clears throat> all kinds of things that have no relation whatsoever to what's taking place. It, it might, you know, if you watch him, you think, I don't think he knows that, that, that his position out there has any meaningful relationship to what's taking place up by the, the home plate. Now, he looks like a baseball player. He's got the equipment. But it'd be hard to judge that just by watching him that he really understands what it means to be a baseball player. And so the coach has to keep shouting out, hey, Joey, get your head in the game. Well, I think that could often uh, be an, uh, an illustration, a metaphor for how we live. As Christians, uh, we're, we're, we're in the game. God has made us his people. 
And he's called us into this great drama of redemption. It's happening. And you've been gathered up into it by the power and the grace of God. You have a magnificent calling laid upon you to proclaim the excellencies of God. To live your life in such a way that people ask for the reason for the hope that's in you. It's a magnificent calling. And you've got a marvelous future that's close at hand. But, but it's, it's very possible, isn't it, on, on some days that if people were just to watch you and look at your attitudes and, and your actions and listen to what you say, that, that they might think to themselves, I'm not sure that person really understands who they actually are and these things that they profess. And so we need to coach every once in a while to right, speak into our life. Hey, Christian, get your head in the game. Wake up. There's something going on. You need to be paying attention to it. Well, that's, that's what Peter does here. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Pay attention. Jesus Christ did not rescue you from eternal condemnation. He did not make you a new creation. He did not give you his Holy Spirit so you could sort of wander aimlessly out in left field in a spiritual fog. He wants us to be aware of what he has accomplished and who he is and what he's promised and what's actually going on around us. You say, we've got to keep our head in the game because... The devil and the world and the flesh are continually up to bat. They're always at work. And temptations can come flying our way at any moment. Peter knows this. He's experienced it. Right? He's, he's been out wandering in left field thinking that this is all about him. And suddenly the devil just came and smacked him. And he stumbled horribly. So Peter knows what he's talking about. Be self-controlled. In other words, don't be living according to your human passions. Don't just be driving after the thing the world drives. Be controlled by the truth of the gospel. Be sober-minded. Sobriety is just being awake, being aware, being spiritually cognizant and sensitive. We need to do this. Why? For the sake of your prayers. Now, that seems like maybe a tag-on. Why would Peter say for the... Why would he add that on here? What's the point? Well... If you think about it, when are the times when you pray? I mean, really pray. The times where you really are, are on your knees, you're before the Lord, you're dealing with God in a significant way. When does that happen? And then think about the times in your life where you, if you pray at all, it's, it's casual, it's flippant, it's short. You have a sense, even as you open your eyes, that those prayers didn't get past the ceiling. What's the difference between those moments? And isn't it true that the difference is, when you really pray, it's when you're spiritually awake. Either you're spiritually awake because of the pain of your sin, and you realize how lost and how needy you are, you, you have a sense of how grievously you've offended God, uh, and, so, and so you're driven to pray with a, with a whole new passion and zeal because you're awake spiritually to what, the truth about who you are and what you need. Or maybe it's just other times you're awake to the goodness of God in, in some particular way and you, you, you just can't help but, but be on your knees and thank Him and worship Him. Either way, when you really pray, you're spiritually sensitive. When you're spiritually sensitive, you really pray. And when you don't pray, you're just in a fog. 
right? You got things to do. You're busy. You're preoccupied. You're anxious. You're whatever it might be. But you're not spiritually awake. So when Peter talks about being spiritually awake and then links it to prayer, it's because that's how it works. And prayer is what we need. Jesus himself said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Prayer is what we do when we're spiritually awake. Prayer is what we need if we're going to live a life that pleases the Lord and bears fruit as as God has called us to do. And so Peter just gets this. He's lived it, and he's begging the church to adopt the same attitude. And um, that's going to lead into when we're spiritually awake, when we're in prayer, it's going to lead into a certain kind of activity. Love, Peter goes to. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Maybe some of you remember that old um, song. I remember singing it in um, probably like third grade. So this is, if you don't remember it, that's fine. Uh, but remember the song, it goes, uh, we are one in the spirit, we are one in the Lord. You got to sing a little more soulfully than that. But the, the, uh, the chorus says, and they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Now, I have bad memories of that song. <clears throat> the tune was kind of sappy. It just felt like you should hold hands. I remember actually doing that in third grade. I'm a boy, and I'm holding the hands of these other kids and girls. So it was... It was not a good experience. But the truth is right on. The great lyrics. We, we are one in the Spirit. Like it or not. We are one in the Lord. And we should be praying that, that we, we would be one, right? And, and they will know we are Christians by our love. It's just true. It's what Jesus said. This is how the world will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And so Peter points here to the priority of love. Above all, he says. Above all. (laughs) So if you're going to proclaim the excellencies of God to a lost world, you need to love people. Above everything else, you need to love people. And, And it needs to be real love. It's not this sentimental sort of general feeling of goodwill, goodwill towards the human masses. It's, it's the hard work. Peter says, love one another earnestly. It's, it's a word that means stretching out painfully, reaching for, and persevering in doing it. Keep on continually straining and stretching and reaching for each other in love. This is, this is engaged, hard work. It takes effort. It takes thought to love, actually really love people. And notice he says it covers a multitude of sins. So when Peter thinks about loving people, he thinks about loving sinful people. People who do stupid things, who say hurtful things, people who act in in ways that uh, break your heart. Real people. People who fail to meet your expectations. People who do things you never would have expected them to do. Real people. He says there's a power here, the power of love. It it covers a multitude of sins. That doesn't mean that your love atones for their sins. It doesn't mean that love 
covers over in the sense of ignores real sin. Sometimes the most loving thing to do is to rebuke a brother or a sister in love. Discipline, if you love your children, you're going to speak truth and you're going to discipline them. What it means is that love deals with sin so the sins are conquered by forgiveness and truth and grace. So, so the, the devastating power of sin is, is conquered. You see, the devil has a reason, a purpose in sin. When he invites Eve to eat the fruit, he's, what's his real goal? Is, it, is his real goal to make her a fuller person, right? That's what he says. You're going you're gonna to be like God, knowing both good and evil. I'm here just to enhance you as a full, fully human person. That's not his goal. His goal is to separate Eve from God. That's his goal. His goal is to destroy Eve and to destroy Adam then as well and the human race. He wants to destroy things. That's what he does. And so his purpose in sin in the body is to destroy, to devastate, to kill. And sin happens. It happens right here at Harvest Church, believe it or not. People here at Harvest Church lie and gossip and slander, and commit sexual immorality. Right here at Harvest Church, people get angry, and bitter, and selfish, and judgmental, and they hold grudges, and they are easily offended, and they easily assume the worst of each other right here. I know it's a shocker. Happens right here. And those are not little things. Those are awful things. Those are wicked, vile things. Desperately wicked, damnable sins, right? And the devil intends every one of them to create division and dissension and death. That's what he wants to do. He wants to destroy the church. So if those sins actually happen here at Harvest Church, and they do, then why doesn't this family just get blown to pieces? And the answer is, you see, because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Because as people sin, other people keep loving them. In the sin and through the sin, and the devastating power of sin then is muted and overcome. See, the the truth is that sin is no match for the gospel. And sin is no match for the practice of real Christians exercising Real love and real forgiveness and real grace in the, in the context of that sin. One of the greatest joys of being a pastor at Harvest Church is to see this happen. To see it work in little ways and in big ways. People will sin and others around them will see the sin. Some of those around them will feel the effect of the sin. And then the body goes to work, like, like antibodies attacking a bacteria or a virus of some sort. The, the antibodies of love and grace and truth, people gather around and they go to work and, and they love each other and they speak truth and they give grace and there's healing where the devil intended nothing but death. It happens over and over and over. It is awesome to see. It's exactly how the body is supposed to work. We don't do it perfectly, but we do it 
By the grace of God, it happens, and it needs to continue to happen. The day we sort of adopt just a sentimental niceness, so we're not going to actually speak to each other about sin, so we don't have to actually give grace or offer forgiveness or bear the pain of each other's weaknesses, that's the day we've stopped being a living church. And we're just a dead form, a corpse. We look like it, but the truth has left a long time ago. This is a great calling. Doesn't mean it's easy. It's not easy. It's heartbreaking. It's painful. It's hard. And it's glorious. Peter says, above all, love each other earnestly. And then he gives one incredibly practical example. And this is about as far as we're going to get uh, in this text this morning. But I didn't want to rush through this. The practice of love. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show love to strangers. That's what it's about. The, in the Greek, uh, the, the word hospitality, it comes from a combination of two words. Uh, the word for love and the word for stranger. Xenos. Philia, xenos. Love for stranger. That's what it means. Now, in Peter's day, that had a cultural um, content to it. People understood that ho- what hospitality was and, and why you would exercise it. There were no hotels there, were not, um, there weren't restaurants, there weren't hospitals, there weren't nursing homes, there weren't places for, for people with special needs. None of that existed. And so, so when people traveled and they came to your town at night, they needed a place to stay. And if they came knocking on your door and, and asked for a place to stay, the culture understood that. It was your responsibility to offer them a place to stay. Because everything breaks down if you don't do that. And, and the next time you're traveling, you want somebody to open the door for you. So hospitality is a very highly prized value in the culture, in the community. It's these last few words that, that, that show that Peter's thinking about something more. Without grumbling. That's the kicker. Uh, it's, in those days, you see, it would be, I mean, you know you have to open the door. you got to let the guy in. You, you need to feed the family. Um, but then you could go back, right, to your own room with your wife, and you could just complain about them. That was maybe was part of the fun. Did you see the way the guy talked to his wife? Did, did you see those kids? What a mess. I mean, you could just, did you see how much food they ate? I'm sure hope they leave tomorrow, right? We need to find reasons why uh, we'd love to help them tomorrow, but it's just not going to be possible. You got to complain. Peter, no. Peter says you have to be happy about it. Happy about it with, without grumbling. Do you know how much God hates grumbling? He hates grumbling. You got to be happy about it. Happy about sharing your home and sharing your time and sharing your food and your, your possessions, your lives with other people, people who are strangers. Now, Peter is speaking, thinking particularly here of Christian strangers, one another, he says. But the, but the concept is one another, folks that maybe you don't know well. They're, hospitality is love for strangers. In fact, in Hebrews 13 too, show hospitality to strangers. Show stranger love to strangers. It's what we're commanded to do. And so, you see, what hospitality is, it's intentionally looking for people on the margins. It sees the, one, the person standing alone. It sees the immigrant who's just moved to the community. And maybe they have a particular dress that marks them in a particular way. 
but sees that person, it cares about that person. It sees the single mom and, and the particular heartaches that, uh, that she has. It sees the alienated teenager, the socially awkward adult, and it reaches for them. It cares for people who feel estranged. And it's a big deal, friends, in the Bible. It's a big deal. One of the, uh, we had our leadership meeting uh, just uh, about a week ago and talked about we'd like to really focus on hospitality in, as a church in this coming year because hospitality is so, it's, it's, it's at the heart of a, of a healthy, thriving church and it, and it keeps us looking outward, not just inward. It's a big deal in the Bible. It's commanded in various places. It's a necessary character trait of elders. If you look at First Timothy chapter 3, it, you, you if a man doesn't have the, a hospitable spirit, well, then something's not right. He hasn't connected all the dots yet. Don't make him an elder. It was required for a widow who wanted to receive diaconal help, 1 Timothy 5, verse 10. Here again, we're, the deacons in the church then are particularly caring for the widows of the church, but if <clears throat> she needs to give evidence that she, she's a widow of the church. And that she's using her time and her gifts to bless other people. If it's all about her, then something's not right. Don't put her on the list. This was an assumed mark of genuine Christianity. And so the early church consequently became known for its hospitality. There's a book out by Christine Pohl on this. She writes, based on Jesus' teaching, on the necessity of welcoming the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind to our dinner tables, that's Luke 14, a distinctive understanding of hospitality emerged in the first centuries of the church. Leaders insisted that although conventional hospitality welcomed family and friends and, and influential acquaintances, Christian hospitality ought to focus on welcoming the vulnerable and the poor into one's home and community of faith. Now, we need to understand that we're up against some obstacles here, um, one being that we have a different social arrangement and a different cultural context. Back then, it was culturally accepted that hospitality mattered and you needed to practice it. It, it, uh, it was basic human kindness to show hospitality to strangers. It was a high social value. It is no longer the case. It's not a high social value. In fact, American cultural values militate against genuine hospitality of this sort. You see, what do Americans value? Well, we value security, we value comfort, we value convenience, we like efficiency, and we believe in self-protection. We believe in these things strongly, and all of them militate against gospel hospitality. Paul again writes, our society places a high value on control and planning and efficiency, but hospitality is unpredictable. The guy just shows up or, or the person in need is suddenly there. And it's often inefficient. We insist on measurable results and completed tasks. But the results of hospitality are impossible to quantify. And the work of hospitality is rarely finished. Hospitality is difficult because of our overwhelming busyness. With all already overburdened schedules, trying to offer substantial hospitality can drive us to despair. Isn't that true? I mean, some of you are thinking, oh, no, don't, don't be talking about this. Have you seen my calendar? You, do you see all the things I'm involved in? Well, I've got good news for you. I'm not asking you to do something more. I'm just asking you to open your eyes and invite people into what you're already doing. 
Invite them into your social calendar. Invite them into your life. Just, just open your eyes to see the people around you who, who would love to have an invitation to dinner. What's, what's the deal with just putting another plate or two on? Or you got you to get together with some friends and there's someone who's new, what, what, invite them in. Just invite people that are on the margins into what you're already doing. The elderly, um, the, 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 the new person, the, the, the uh, person next door who um, she, just, she just needs someone to, to be there or to invite her in and show that, that, that she's cared about. This is, this is so important. But we have to think like Christians, not like Americans. And we've got to realize that our American values are going to militate against us. Piper said recently, no mission strategy will work if your people are more American than they are Christian. And that's absolutely true. The gospel has to be molding our calendars and our values, not, uh, not the culture. Now, let me wrap with this. Why does this matter? Well, it matters to God. He is the one who watches over the fatherless and the widow. He cares for the aliens. He loves to show mercy to the person on the margins, the stranger. And remember Matthew 25 when Jesus is talking about the sheep and the goats. And it's about hospitality. It's about, it's about feeding the poor and clothing the naked and caring for the sick and visiting those in prison. And, and the sheep did that, and the goats did not do that. You see, that the hospitality or the lack of it, love or the lack of it, determined their eternal destiny. And I don't think we should be quick to assume that that's not still true. See, if, there's no, if there's no evidence of the gospel love within us, then, then why would we think that we're going to be invited in? So, that, so this weighs, this, got, this has significance. But I, I think it's, it's more helpful if, if you look at Matthew chapter 25, you realize that these actions are, it's, it's, it's love to Jesus, it's service to Jesus. Notice in, in that text, he, Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, I was naked, I was sick, I was in prison. And the righteous will say, Lord, I, man, when did we do this to you? We don't remember doing this to you. And the king will answer them. The king. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. What if I uh, came to you after the service today and said, um, just wondering if you would be willing to have Jesus over for lunch today. Who among you would say, oh, man. I really had my heart set on a nap, and uh, we got plans. Um, I, I don't think it's going to work today. Nobody, nobody would say that in their right mind, right? Not, a, not if Jesus was actually coming to, to, your, to your house, and, and yet Jesus says, as clearly as a man could say it, that inasmuch as you do it to the least of these, you are doing it unto me. That, that, that you are serving Christ exactly as you show hospitality to others. You see, and it's, it's an, it matters because it's an important sign in the world of the truth of the gospel. The gospel is the story of ultimate hospitality, where God loved us. We were aliens. We were strangers. We were outcasts. We were rebels. We had nothing to offer him at all, and yet God welcomed us and received us and loved us and cared for us, gave us his own son, Jesus Christ, adopted us into his, into his own family. And there's, there's something about the gospel that, that moves us then to show that same kind of love. And God 
God uses that kind of love to continue the gospel mission. How many people haven't been brought into the church, not because of some great message they heard, but because somebody who called themselves a Christian invited them over and got to know them and cared for a need. Hospitality, love for strangers. It matters to God, it matters to Christ, it matters because it's a sign of the gospel, and it matters to people who are strangers. It matters a lot. I um, had an experience last week, not this week, the week before, I was down in Chicago for a small conference, and uh, about 100 people were there, and uh, all the men that I've looked up to over the years, John Piper, uh, Alistair Begg, Tim Keller, Don Carson, David Platt, Harry Reeder, they're all there. It's sort of a conference for the leaders of the Gospel Coalition, and uh, Kevin DeYoung threw my name in the hat, and I got, I got invited to just sort of watch. So the conference began with a lunch uh, in the cafeteria down at uh, Trinity, and uh, so I show up for lunch and had a miserable hour because um, I walk in, and I go through the line, and, and nobody said a word to me. And I see all these people all over having conversations. They're talking. They seem to be enjoying themselves. And it wasn't that people were intentionally ignoring me. It's just that nobody noticed. Nobody said hi. Nobody asked for my name. Um, no one welcomed me in any way. No one, no one did anything. Now, I had a bit of an inferiority complex just going there. I mean, these are sort of all my, my stars, I guess, in some sense, right? Guys I look up to. So you feel, what you know, what, I don't really belong here. What am I doing here? Um, and then... Um, just being utterly unnoticed, those two, that was not a fun combination. It just sort of confirms, right, what you already think. I, d I don't belong here. So in the end, I found a table off in the back, and, um, and, and I was shocked at how painful that experience was. I, I don't have those experiences very often, usually because I'm always talking. <laughs> People just leave. Um, but it was incredibly painful. And I wanted to just get up and walk, go for a walk and come back once the conference got started. I'd just go find a seat in the back and just enjoy the conference. But I thought, no, this is good for me. This is what it must feel like to visit a new church and stand alone in the foyer. Or after church. And you already have a sense that you may, you're not sure maybe you really belong, you're new here. Maybe you haven't been in church for a long time. Maybe you've never been in church before. Maybe you're just brand new and you're wondering, how do I fit in? You look around and people seem to be having conversations. Everyone seems to know somebody and they all seem to be having a good time. And it's not that people are intentionally ignoring you. It's just no one says hi. And no one asks for your name. And no one cares enough to get to know you. And, and it just dawned on me, if, if that was my experience, if I went to a new church and I was, I was looking for a church and I, I sensed I needed, to, I needed to, to, to get involved somehow, I needed to belong and, and no one invited me and no one welcomed me, no one got to know me, that would be so painful, I would never go back again. Friends, hospitality matters to people on the margins. And there are people on the margins even members, young people who don't feel really plugged in, couples who are maybe struggling, single people who, who look around, they see all these families and all these kids, and, and where do they fit in that? Elderly who maybe feel the same way. There are people on the margins. There are people who, um, who feel that pain. They know they need to be in church, and yet it can be a painful experience for them. And friends, I, We've got to love each other.
And we've got to love the people on the margins. We're commanded to. If we get the gospel, if we understand how God has loved us, you see, then we're going to do this. But we have to be intentional about it. It means that you just have got to look at your home in a different way. Your home is not your little safety cave where you can go escape from everyone. It's been given to you in order to bless people. That's why you have a home, to bless people. When's the last time you just invited someone you did not know to come over to your house and share a meal? When's the last time that happened? And friend, it's not, if it's been a long time, what's going to change that pattern in your life? We live in a world where there are refugees and immigrants all around us. That You go to the store and they shop with you. You go to the restaurant, they eat with you. They're walking down the street. They're alone. They're in a brand new culture. They're in a brand new community. They need someone to show concern for them. I wish I could talk. Well, we'll get more on this maybe later. It, it's so critical, and the power of it is so immense. I was at that conference. I met a guy, um, Afshin. He's from Iran. He moved to America in 1978. That's when the hostage crisis was happening. Their, his family um, had their windows smashed. They moved down to Houston, Texas. Tires were slashed on their car uh, because they were they were from Iran. Uh, kids taunted him: "Bomb, bomb, 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 Iran." Right? That's what he grew up in. And yet there was one person, a lady who was his, his, his mentor, his tutor, second grade, taught, teaching him how to read. She cared for him. She loved him. She gave him a Bible. She said, Afshin, you're not going to understand this now, but this is the most important book you'll ever read. And someday I want you to promise me that you'll read it. Ten years later, when he was a senior in high school, he actually did read it. And God used it to convert him. And he said... I'm so glad that somebody, when I was in second grade, saw my family as an opportunity, not a threat. Muslims are not threats to, maybe they're a threat to our American comfort and security. They are a mission field for Christians. And they're right here. And so are Buddhists and Hindus. They're right in our community. And we have the opportunity to show the love of Jesus Christ and to welcome them into our lives and into our homes and into the church. We just, we just need to commit ourselves to it because Jesus Christ calls us to it. And the aim is this, and I'll end with this, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's the point of all of it. That God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen? Let's pray. God in heaven, this is practical, it's real, the needs are all around us, and Lord, we do feel inadequate, we feel harried and pressured, and Lord, so often that's because we have a whole agenda formed by our culture instead of an agenda formed by the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would rethink our priorities, our values, our commitments. You've given us so much. I pray, oh God, that you would help us as a church to be awake and, Lord, to, to show love in practical ways, including hospitality. Lord, I pray that your gospel would, would drive us to that and that, Lord, your spirit would, would fuel that desire. I pray, oh God, that we would face not just those on the margins or new visitors here at Harvest and welcome them, but we'd face our community 
We would have eyes for people who are alone, people who are hurting, people who are marginalized. And that you would give us a love for them, a love that moves us to welcome them into our homes and into our life. Lord, give us wisdom, but above all, Lord, don't let us, don't let us waste our lives living for the American dream. I pray, God, that you would lead us in gospel fruitfulness and to the end that God is glorified in Jesus Christ and in his church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.